We're taking our Bibles and join me in John chapter 14. I want to continue a sermon that I started last week. I was going to do it in the evening, but then we had a missionary show up, and so I did something unusual, impromptu, had him speak. Bruce Tuttle shared the word with us that evening. So we're going to pick up where we had left off last Sunday morning in John chapter 14. If you need sermon notes, just raise your hand. The ushers will hand that to you. Otherwise, you'll find them in the bulletin that they're there. Makes it easy for you. Florence Chadwick was an individual who had flo who had swum the uh, English Channel, first woman to do so. And then she decided that what she wanted to do is she wanted to swim from Catalina Island to the Florida co uh, to the California coast in 1952. She planned for it. She prepared. She did all the rigors and all the the different exercise in getting ready for it to swim these 22 miles uh, in the Pacific Ocean. And so the day came that she was going to do that, and it happened to be a day that it was a little bit different weather-wise than what they had anticipated. There was a severe fog that had set in, and it wasn't real high, but it was low upon the water, and the water was a little bit choppy, not enough for her not to do it. So she got into the water and started off. She swam, 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 swam. For 15 hours, she worked swimming nonstop, constantly. The boat came up next to her with her mother and others, and they were saying, how are you doing? She says, I don't know. I don't know if I can make it. And they said, you're really, really close. You're really, really close. Don't give up now. She tried for a while, but then it just, she just quit. Exhaustion took advantage, discouragement, and while she was, after she had swum almost 16 hours, she climbed into the boat and then she saw that she was that close. Out of the water she could see through the fog, out of the water she could see across the surface, and she realized that she was within a quarter mile of land. And after she had gotten that close, here's what she said afterwards, all I could see was the fog. I would have made it if I could have seen the shore. Just a glimpse, I would have made it. I think the same thing happens to us. There are times where we get discouraged, we feel defeated, we feel downhearted at times because we can't see the shore. At times we don't, we don't notice that there is Christ, there is rewards, there is what he's planned for us in the future, and we don't get a glimpse of that, and as a result, the fog of life takes over. The exhaustion of life takes over. And when we get so close to serving to the fullest of our capacities, we give up at times. Well, Jesus is dealing with disciples who are feeling that way. He's telling them that they are going to have real trials and troubles in the days ahead. And in John 14, verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And then, to encourage them, he describes heaven. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, <coughs> I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then he goes on and makes a few other comments, but let's build with this. He's talking about heaven. He's giving them encouragement to just keep on going. Don't be troubled. Don't be distracted. Just keep on going because there's something far better in the future. And yet, for many people, they give up. Why? They don't understand heaven. Some don't even study it. Some don't even, as we said last week, read a book on it. Some don't have any clue. Some think it's a discouraging spot. One of our mothers did something very wise. She asked her child in the last week or two, what do you think heaven is like? And the child's response was basically what we've been talking about. Well, I guess it'll be a good place. Do you think you'll be bored there? Yeah, I think so, but at least I'll be with you and dad. I think a lot of us have that attitude, and we ought not. So we want to talk about heaven, but somebody challenged me in the last week or so. They said, hey, listen, you're talking about heaven. Why are you bothering doing that? If we think so much about heaven, we'll be no earthly good. Uh, I differ with that. I differ with that for this reason. Jesus used heaven to encourage people who are going through real, real trials, death, 
death of loved ones, trials like persecution. And he talked about it in John 11, John chapter 14. A lot of you have experienced some of those situations. You have lost parents, brothers, sisters. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost spouses. Some of you are facing some real serious situations. Life-threatening, job-threatening, family-threatening. Thinking about heaven is an encouragement. Some will say that it's encouraging because I want to know what happens to our loved ones. You know the Thessalonians wrote unto Paul and they said, Paul, we have a concern about those who have already died who are born again. What happens to them? So he writes and he tells them because it's natural for us to know and want to know what are our loved ones doing? Those who have passed on, where are they? We are told in scriptures that we're supposed to put our treasures in heaven. Seek those things that are above. Well, we don't understand how that bank of heaven works, how this reward works, what possible rewards there are, well, that's going to take away some of our incentive. You know what? If we know more about heaven, it'll encourage us to even become better witnesses so that when we're sharing what heaven is really like, those individuals who have a misconception about heaven, you can give them the real facts and it would draw them even closer in their heart and in their desire to want to know Christ, to be in this place that is so amazing. There's an author that many of you have read his books. You've seen some of his books put to film, C.S. Lewis. He made this comment, if you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world precisely are those who thought the most about the next. What an impacting thought. If we are really focused on what Christ would have for us in the future, it makes a difference right here today. So it's worth our study. And yet there are some who have said to me in the last week, they said, you know, the shame of it is the Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about heaven or what we will be like. It's true he doesn't answer all the questions. And it's true that there's a lot of things that are left un unrevealed. But the Bible does give us a lot of information about heaven, enough that could keep us busy for a while. John 14. The book of Revelation has several chapters that give indications about what people are like in heaven. The heaven today. The heaven that we will go to one day before it comes down to this earth after the second coming. We're going to talk about that tonight in, John, uh, in Revelation. What Ron wrote, uh, John wrote in Revelation in chapter 6, he describes what we are like when we go to heaven and he gives us three verses that are filled with a lot of facts that we'll look at tonight. That'll be very interesting. In many Old Testament passages, just give us an idea what that heaven on earth will be like when he brings, comes back and he brings it down to this earth. It gives us a lot of detail. So there's a lot of passages that give us a lot of information about what heaven is like, what our bodies will be like, what our spirits are like in heaven. So when we put it all together, there's a lot of detail. A lot of detail that helps us to understand heaven and make it in our minds a more, a more exciting place, a place that we will want to venture to when we get all the facts and put them together. Bottom line is, the heaven that we go to today, the heaven that our loved ones go to, it's not the permanent heaven. The permanent, long, eternal heaven is going to be that which Jesus will bring to this new heaven and new earth down in the future of time. But for right now, the heaven that we go to, there's a lot of detail. John chapter 14 gives us the insight. And as we look at it, here's what we find. We mentioned last week, it is real. It is a real place. What I mean by that, just to restate it quickly, it is a place that is of reality. A place that has substance to it. We think reality is something that we can knock upon. Something we can sit upon. Something we can drive in. Well, heaven, as the Bible under explains it, is a place that has matter and space and time to it that we can relate to. Jesus said, if it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place. A place that has dwelling places, things 
items that we can relate to. So heaven is both spirit and physical combined where there is the world that we know of today within the spiritual realm and we say well how is that possible? Well that's, that's not such a stretch. You do realize that spirits are around us right now. In the Old Testament one of the prophets was, was telling his servant don't worry we're going to be protected from the enemies that have surrounded the city. And he says how is that? He said God opened up my prophet's eyes. And all of a sudden he sees into the spirit world around him and sees God's army, his host of angels, protecting Israel at that time. So there is the spirit world around us within our, our world as we know it. There are angels in our midst. There are demons within our midst. There are demons, <laughs> I don't mean in a bad way, but we know that there are demons in D.C., Okay, we, we know that there are angels in D.C., that the, the spirits in the spirit world, they are involved with politics. Now, you might know some of those that you said I voted for. Okay, not those guys. We're talking about the real spirits, the real angels, the real demons that Daniel talks about. They blend into our society. They blend into our world. At times, they enter in, and people have entertained angels unawares. So there's this idea of heaven being a physical place with matter and not just some invisible aura. That, that's not so hard to comprehend. In fact, when Jesus appeared at the Mount of Transfiguration, standing next to him was Moses in the spirit and Elijah in his body. Elijah never died. He was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire, uh, of fire up there with his body. So he has been residing there for hundreds of years. And yet they're standing at the Mount of Transfiguration, one in his body, one in his spirit, and they're communicating with Christ. You have that spirit world where Jesus comes out of the tomb, the angel in the, in the spirit world is talking to the peoples. Jesus ascends with a physical body and is in heaven, a spiritual place with a physical body right now. In fact, the Bible gives us indication how angels are interacting in the spirit world, interacting within our physical. When the rapture takes place, that's the moment that Jesus comes to the clouds, takes up all the believers, and it could happen at any moment according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When he takes us to heaven, he's going to take us with our bodies. He's going to collect all those loved ones, all those who have died before, their bodies out of the grave, reunite them with the Spirit. He's going to then give us different bodies, take us to heaven. Bodies that will be able to ride horses, real horses, and come back from heaven. So there's going to be a period, at least seven years, that we're in heaven with our physical bodies, and we're going to come down on horses back to this earth. So the heaven that we know is a real place. It's a blend of the spiritual and the physical. We also know this from Scripture. It is remarkable. It is a place, as he says, of many mansions. The word literally means permanent dwelling places. And yet, when we think about the majesty of heaven, it's amazing. James Oglethorpe, he was one of those generals after the Revolutionary War, decided that he was going to found one of the cities. So he founded the Savannah City down south. He did something that nobody else had done up to this point, which is amazing. He patterned the city in America 21 blocks by 21 blocks in a solid grid based it upon the Roman encampments that the Roman soldiers used back in Caesar's days. They said, and even to this day, they call it an architectural masterpiece. And in that district, people are awed and amazed that he did something that is so amazing by the city, the way it was laid out, and with such study and design. Well, Jesus Christ is building a city in heaven, and it has better design 
design, better, better architecture, the, the buildings themselves are diamonds and gold, and, and it's the pearly gates, and it's all those gems that are described. The foundations, all 12 of them, are different gems. It is so brilliant in this city that there's no need for light. There's no need for the sun, the moon, because God's glory will radiate. It is a remarkable place. It is the most amazing place that anybody on earth will ever see. And even though we see the Grand Canyons and we see the stars at night and all their beauty and their hosts, nothing. It pales in comparison to heaven. Heaven is a place that is relevant. It is relevant. I take that from this thought. And, and listen closely. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. What I mean by that is this. God doesn't need a place. God is a spirit. God doesn't need mansions. God doesn't need a tree of life. God isn't preparing heaven for himself. He doesn't need that. He is a spirit. So why is he building a place? A place with a city. A place where there's homes. A place that has food. A place that has river. A place that has a planet. A new heaven. New earth. He's doing that for us. You see, when I told you last week, I was giving you a little bit of the story of us selling the home, our realtor said to us, you know, when you sell your house, it'll mean something to somebody. That house will appeal to some person. It may not have the appealing appeal to others. Therefore, they won't pay the price. But there's somebody who wants that. And when you look, you are going to find a house that really appeals to you if time allows. You're going to find a house, so have your list and it'll be what you think matches your needs and you will fit right into it and you will love it when you walk in. That's exactly what happened to us. Somebody came to our house, they loved it, it fit them. They were a young family. We walked into a house, we loved it, it fit us. Well, heaven is like that. Heaven is not that it's designed so that we all get everything we ever wanted on earth. Oh, my idea of heaven is chocolate. There it is. I'm going to have a chocolate house. Oh, my idea of heaven is shoes. I'm going to have shoes, 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 shoes. Okay, my idea of heaven is video games. And so all of my house will be one big screen. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that God will cater to every one of our whims and wishes. But I am saying this. That heaven will be designed and your home and what God has prepared for you will be really relevant to you, to me. It'll be a place that suits us in its purity, in its challenges, in its size, in the companionship, in the fellowship, in the foods that are there, in the, in the activities we can do. It is built not for God, it is built for us. And I'm not saying that heaven is man-centered. Don't get me wrong. It is a place of worship where God is the focal point, but he doesn't need those physical things. He doesn't need those homes. He's building them so we have a comfortable place to fellowship and worship and live with him forever. And so it's relevant to us. It is a place designed to meet all of our desires, our needs, where we will feel comfortable, where we will feel at peace, where we will have the sense of fulfillment, it is relevant to you and me. It is a wonderful place. It is a heaven, a great place that God has you in mind when he is building it. That's amazing that God would do that. Number four, it is a place of rest. A place that, well, you know, he says, let not your hearts be troubled, or the idea is being torn apart, but rather you will have rest. What does that mean? Does that mean that heaven, we will all have my pillow, and we will sleep for all eternity? Is that the idea? 
Now I know that some people can sleep absolutely anywhere. That they can rest and they can snooze. Some are really talented. Some look kind of goofy when they fall asleep. When all of a sudden they are just zonked right out. We understand that. We know that some people, they shouldn't be sleeping all the time. Okay, especially little kids, you know, when you get, yeah, the kids that are, that are resting, and you've all had this, where kids have fallen asleep. Oh, and sometimes it is so precious. There you go, ladies, get the awe out, yeah. Okay. Is that what we're talking about? Heaven is like this, that we are going to be Rip Van Winkles, and we are going to sleep forever, and you will catch up on all the sleep you've ever missed. No. Oh, yeah. You say, well, then I better catch up right now. Okay, go ahead. Okay. No, that's not what we mean. But you do realize this, that even sometimes when we sleep, we're not relaxed. You ever have those type of sleeps? The nightmares? That you, or you wake up and you felt more tired because you ran all night and you were stuck in something, you know. Am I the only one that does, does these weird dreams? That I'm running and I don't move? Oh, I've done... I've, my weird dreams are like this. I'm preaching. This one I'll never forget. I'm preaching, and one by one you all left. <laughs> and the organist was the last person, and she said, get a hint. And she got up and left. <laughs> you ever have those restless dreams? Is that what we're talking about? That heaven is going to be where all of a sudden one of those things we all fear, that we have those dreams, we come out in our underwear. Woo! Okay. No. No, it's not one of those rest things. Or is it, is it a perpetual vacation where, oh, I get to, I get to just you know, sunbathe for all eternity? Is that what it is? Hey, have you ever had a vacation that you still, even in the vacation, you've come back tired from? Yeah? Yeah? Have you ever had one of those breaks that didn't feel like a break? I was sharing with some of the college kids. When we were in college, and that was back, I know it was easier then because the history pages only had three pages. I understand that. Okay. I understand that it was a different era, different, you know, a different century, in fact. I, I understand that. But when we were in college, what they did at the college we went to is um, they wanted to make sure the students came back for the next semester. So when we took Christmas break, we would have our two-week break, and then all of our finals and papers were due after Christmas. So the entire Christmas break, guess what we were doing? We were supposed to be studying, okay? We were supposed to do our papers, do those things. But in my mind, Christmas break was a break. But in the back of my mind, even when I'm snowmobiling and doing the different things like that, there in central Minnesota in the middle of the winter and, and trying to, you know, let's go out and let's ice skate. Let's do some fun things. In the back of my mind, I got to study. I got to get this done. Is that the type of what heaven's going to be like? That we want to rest and relax, but we're going to have this pressure. No, no. In fact, heaven is a place where we will be busy. We'll talk about that in a little bit more in a moment. But it's the idea of rest in heaven is satisfaction. It is a job well done. It is completion. It doesn't mean laziness. It doesn't mean sleep perpetually. It's the idea that we, what we do is going to be fulfilling. There will be that peacefulness. There will not be the pressure of having to get things done. There will be a peace and a comfort in your mind and in your heart. It is a place of rest. It is also described as a very roomy place. In my father's house are many, many mansions. Now, if I were to take you to the passage, and some of you last summer were here when we did this study, in Revelation 21, he's describing the city that is being built right now by Jesus Christ that will eventually come down to this planet Earth, the place that he is preparing. 
the angel comes and the angel is given a rod, a measuring rod, a yardstick. And he's told to measure this city that is being built in heaven, the city of gold, diamonds, pearly gates, that, that city. And he describes it. And in our English, in our American measurements, we would say it's 1,500 miles in all different directions. Whether it be a pyramid or a cube, we have a city that is absolutely massive. The city, if it was imposed upon the United States, would take everything from the East Coast to the Mississippi. And it would cover it all. That's just one city in heaven. The main city, the capital city. If we were to get the sense of a height of it, you'd have to look at the curvature of the earth and say, okay, if I'm standing at one point, what can I see in the far off distance? But knowing that there's curvature, I would have to be at a certain distance or something would have to be at a certain height. Well, if we were to build a tower in the middle of the United States and position people on each side, how tall would that tower need to be that we'd be able to see that tower there in the Chicago area? The tower would have to be 300 miles high in order to be seen from the East Coast, West Coast, with, with help, uh, obviously. But to be able to see it over the horizon. Well, the city that he's describing is 1,500 miles high. It is massive. You say, well, I'll throw the planet Earth off. It's a new Earth. How it, ro how it rotates, the gravitation, we don't understand all that. So it won't be a problem. But this city is so amazing. When we take the dimensions of the city and just say, okay, let's figure out acreage. Let's give you know, 25 feet per floor. Let's go up 1,500 miles. How much room is there? There's enough room that less than a handful of us would be able to live in Lebanon County alone. It is massive. If all the people on planet Earth were to go to that city right now, just a handful of us would get the region of Le the size of Lebanon County in that city. It is amazing. Why did God make it so big? Because he is not willing that any should perish. He wants all to be there. Now, when we were in the missions trips, we saw some people that weren't living in luxury. We went to one place in the Philippines. It was in a jungle area that the pastor invited us over for supper before I preached at his church. We go there, and it's on stilts, and it's higher than what's pictured there. And it was you know, almost a floor and a high uh, floor, you know, the 10, 12 feet up in the air on stilts. We get there, and he's going to give us supper. I, I really hesitate to tell you this, but what he did is he walked out on the veranda, the balcony, whatever you call it, actually he walked out of his bedroom, and he sliced there coconuts. And he brought coconuts back. And he gave each one of us a coconut. And he chopped them in, he, he gave, put a hole in it, gave us a straw so we could drink the gallon of coconut milk inside, each one. And then he chopped them in half and gave us spoons. That was our supper. I am not a friend of coconut. Okay, isn't that an understatement? That was fabulous coconut. It was fabulous. It was fresh. It gets me to think heaven's fruit is going to be phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And then so he cut it off. But in this house, you know, after you drink a gallon of coconut milk, is there a restroom? <laughs> and he pointed to a bucket. What will heaven be like for that family? who have never lived in luxury the way we live in luxury. What is heaven going to be like to those who live in portions of Eastern Europe, like in Georgia, where you get up to 20 people you know, living in one apartment, a one-bedroom apartment, on a regular basis? What will the roominess of heaven feel like to those people? What will it be like to those in South Africa that the Rudolphs deal with? Some of those in these encampments where it's just one, one, little, wooden, uh, one little block house in the middle of a heated area where they have no air conditioning, where they don't have the luxuries we have. Heaven will be phenomenal. Let, let's be honest. 
we are amazed by the mansions of the southern society and visit them. And we go and we say, wow, it's amazing. Do you realize that your home and your home alone will be better than any of those mansions, the one that God has prepared for you? It will be remarkable. It will be amazing. It will be beyond our description. It is also a place of routine. You have in heaven routine where he says, I go to prepare a place for you, indicate something. It indicates something profound for you and me. Let me take you all the way back. We'll, we'll talk about, is heaven boring? Are we going to do any kind, of, any kind of something? Are we going to float around on heaven and learn to play harps? And we all play harps. Is that what heaven's going to be like? No. No, Jesus says that he's busy in heaven. He's preparing a place. In fact, that's not the first time that when God built a paradise or a place of perfection that he had activity going on. When he put man and woman in the Garden of Eden, did he give them assigned jobs? The answer is yes. Work is not a result of the, of the fall. Work was in place before the fall. The problem was after the fall, the curse was toil in work, difficulty in work. But prior to that, work is something that's beneficial. Activity is something we need. We are people that are created so that we produce. So in the paradise, the unfallen paradise, God gave assignments. I can prove, and we'll get into this in the next couple of weeks, that God in the future home that he prepares, in the kingdom, the eternal kingdom that will be here on earth and then the new earth, there will be assignments. We will have jobs to do. We will all be given different levels of occupations, different levels of activities. There will be exploration. There will be learning. There will be activity. We will bring our glories, that, that is our discoveries, to the king and show it to him. So we will be busy in the eternal heaven. It's not going to be a place of boredom, which gets me to think, well, if in the present heaven there is activity of building taking place, and in the paradise of the past there was activity where there was no sin, and in the paradise in the future there is activity and work being no sin, then it seems to me that very sensibly we're going to be busy even in the present heaven. There will be some activity. Now when we get there, when we who are raptured get there, well, what's going to happen immediately or shortly thereafter is there's a judgment. We're going to have to stand before Christ, so there will be that activity. But then what do we do after that? I don't know all those heavenly activities, but I'm just putting ABC together and thinking, well, there's got to be something that we're doing. It's not wrong for God to give assignments in a perfect kingdom, in a perfect paradise, and there's building going on, so there very well may be quite a bit of activity. But we will have rest while we're doing that. That is, we won't feel the pressure. We won't have the deadlines. We won't have all those other types of, of ongoing. We won't have, hey listen, can you think about this? So you get a job painting. You know what's a beautiful part of your painting job? There's no rust. You think of gardening. There's no weeds. Amen. They're gone. Okay, so it's going to be a work that is going to be absolutely wonderful. It's not going to be a place that's boring. Heaven is a place of reunions. He says, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again. He says, and you, all of you, may be also. It's not a place of isolation. It's a place of interaction. It's not like hell where there is people cast into outer darkness and feel loneliness to the very depth of their core. Heaven's just the opposite. Heaven's a place of reunions. Heaven's a place of fellowship. Heaven's a place of getting together with individuals, of meeting individuals and talking to them. One mother, I was reading an account of a mother whose five-year-old, they had found out, had a terminal cancer. 
They were talking to the five-year-old and, and saying, you know, there's nothing more that can be done and you're going to pass on, you're going to die. And the little five-year-old asked the question, what is it going to be like? What is it going to be like when I die? And the mother had prayed, and Lord, give me wisdom what to do. And she had this thought, something that would comfort her daughter. And she said, honey, here's the way it is. They were in the room. She says, I want you to go through this door and go into that other room by yourself. The little girl went over here. Mom shut the door and said, okay, are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. And then dad came in. The little girl was excited. Dad was there. And then after a little bit, one of the brothers came in. And then after a little bit, one of the grandparents came in. Then after a little bit, until every one of the family members were there. And she says, honey, that's what heaven's like. That's what it's going to be like for you. You're going to go in before us, but we're all going to join you. Maybe not at the same time, but eventually we will all be there. The little girl was comforted. The little girl was, was at peace. And then mom explained, by the way, when you first go in, you will not be by yourself. There will be many other people there, people who are great-great-great-grandmas, great-great-great-grandpas. But best of all, there's going to be Jesus. And he will be there. He will take care of you. He will introduce you. But we will all be there. And when we all get there, whether it be one at a time or all together, when we get together, we will never, ever, ever, ever be parted again. We will be together. Doesn't that make heaven worth it? To be with the loved ones? Loved ones who have gone before us who are meeting distant relatives. Loved ones who are gone before us who are meeting ancestors. Loved ones who are reading, meeting peoples of history. It is a wonderful place. Do they think about you? Do they even have thoughts about you? I'll answer that tonight and show you from Scripture the biblical answer. But let's go a little bit further. It's a place of rejoicing. Heaven is a place of rejoicing. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't be troubled, but instead, there's supposed to be rejoicing that takes place. If we go, even in the parables that Jesus gave, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is giving parables because the Pharisees came along. And the Pharisees say, God is a stern God. God is, is one who, he isn't happy with sin. Well, God is not happy with sin, but God is ready to pounce on people if they do wrong. And they, by fear, had the people terrorized of an idea or concept of God who is ready to crush them. And in fact, the Pharisees said, God delighted in punishing people. Well, Jesus is going to try to correct that. And Jesus told different parables about how he felt about those who have gone astray. He told about the sheep. The one of the 99 who went astray. And the shepherd was so concerned for that one that he left the other sheep in care of others and went looking for that 99, that one lost sheep that left the 99. That he cared so much that when he found them and came back, they were rejoicing. He told about a woman who had a dowry that was part of usually their headdress that the coins would be there. She lost one of those coins and she looked hither and yon. She still had the other coins, but she lost one. And it was precious to her. She found it. And when she did, she invited her friends over. They celebrated. He tells about a prodigal who leaves the home and runs away and then is away for a period of time in all kinds of difficult situations, sinful situations, living to his heart's content, but comes to the end of himself. Finds himself, a Jewish lad, finds himself taking care of pigs, eating pig food. 
The boy comes to his senses and says, my dad's servants have it better. I'm going home. I'm going to ask my dad if I can just be a servant. It's a whole lot better back home. And as he goes and approaches home, dad sees him. And as the song said this morning, that God runs when he sees far off. Here God ran to, or the father runs to the son, embraces him, welcomes him home, restores him. And Jesus concluded by talking in all three of these stories about rejoicing when the wayward comes back, that in heaven there is rejoicing. And he makes the statement about joy in heaven. And he said it twice in this text. Likewise, I say, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents. He says, likewise, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. Don't be mistaken. The passage doesn't say that it's the angels who are doing the rejoicing. It says in their presence, in their midst. Could they be? No doubt. But are they the only ones? I don't think so by revelations. By revelation, there's a lot more joy going on by a whole lot of people. And it seems to be that the overriding thought in heaven is one of joy. Is there, is there occasional sorrow? Is there occasional heartbreak? I'll show you this evening from Revelation 6. But the overriding primary one is heaven is a place where there is great joy. Let me ask you, what's your happy place? Not to be silly, not to be Disney-like, you know, or Hershey Park-like, what's your happy place? What's your place that you think of, this is where I find peace, comfort, this is where I relax, this is where I really enjoy. It could be some, some man-made thing, it could be some type of, you know, northern mountains, it could be some activity place. For me, my happy place is Williamsburg. It's got history, I love it. When I go down there, it's like when we walk into the town, this is for me, when I drive into the town, I relax immediately. It's just like, whew, I forget you. <laughs> and, it's, and it's just like, whew, I want to see this, I want to see this, I want to see this, I want to see this. I want to go and I want to learn about this, I want to learn about this. I, oh, they're doing a show about this character, I want to learn about him. I was thinking about my happy place, what heaven will be like. A place I can walk in and the proverbial, let your hair down, you know, relax, place of rest. I love history. I am going to be in heaven learning history. Whoa. I get to ask the real Tom, well, if he's there, uh, George Washington, uh, well, if he's there. Okay. I get to learn history because that's my thing. The people that will be, it will be Wow, and I think Williamsburg is cool. That has all of this that just appeals to me. Your happy place, heaven. A place where you will find where it meets your desires, your wants, your needs, your comfort. That doesn't mean he's going to bow down to all of our basest level of desires. I'm not saying that. But God in this perfect realm is designing it where we can relax, where we can grow, where we can reach our full potential. Now for some of us, our be best happy place is family. You will be with them forever and ever and ever. No more problems, no more health issues, no more nothing that is evil, that is bad, that is harmful. It is going to be one wonderful, wonderful place. It's amazing what heaven is like, a place of righteousness, a place where there is no taint of sin, there's not even rust, there's not even pollution, there's nothing evil because he talks about where he is. Well, 
by the way, Revelation 1 gives us a description of Jesus in heaven. It says that this Jesus is brilliant. He is white. He is holy. That even John falls down dead. Habakkuk describes God in his glory. He says, you are of pure eyes than to behold. That is, to gaze upon, to dwell upon. The idea to be enamored by sin. Yeah, God, heaven is going to be a place where there is no wise, anything that defiles, anything that does evil or wrong or impurity. It's not going to be there. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How can that be, Pastor? What does the Bible say about Satan? Is Satan out of heaven right now? I thought you taught us in the past that Satan can go to heaven right now. He can. He can. He's not going to be fully cast out of heaven until the middle of the tribulation period in that last seven years when there's that final conflict that is going to take place. Revelation 12, he's only cast out permanently at that time. But it's not his dwelling place at this moment, but he has access. And when he gets there and enters into the throne room part of heaven, he accuses the brethren. He wants to turn God against us. But Jesus Christ stands and defends us. So there's this courtroom taking place. Satan's allowed there. Keep in mind that even though Satan has some access, he doesn't corrupt it. He doesn't pollute it. He doesn't destroy it. Jesus has defeated him. He has limited powers even now upon this earth, powers beyond ours, but he has been defeated already. He is limited. Satan is allowed in, but he can make no permanent changes. He cannot be a permanent residence. He cannot disrupt what God is doing in heaven. Though he tries, his, account, his encounters with God at the throne room, and doesn't appear that he has encounter with anybody else in heaven, but God at his throne room, where it's a controlled situation. We know that he will eventually be cast out and put away, and then when that new heaven comes down to this earth, there will in no wise enter in anything that is wrong, anything that is tainted, anything that is a result of the curse. Think it through, no thorns. Think it through, no illness. Think it through, no poverty. Think it through, no disease. There will be no accidents. There will be no corruption. There will be no political corruption. None of the industrial greed, all of that will be gone. There will be no lies. It will be a perfect, righteous situation. But there's a blip in all that. There is going to be one moment in history in the future where God will say at the end of his thousand-year kingdom on earth, he is going to say, okay, those of you who want to rebel, you have one last moment to rebel. And it says, as the sands of the seas, people will choose to rebel. People born during that time period will choose to rebel and follow Satan who's been let out for just a fleeting moment. And they will rebel against him. That's when he will have the final encounter with Satan. That's when he will then destroy all those who have rejected him, though they've lived in a perfect environment when they get their moment. They will revolt. He will stop them in their tracks and then he will destroy the heaven and the earth that's been renewed. He will then have the great white throne judgment and he will look and say, is your name written in the book of life? If not, you're into the lake of fire forever and ever. And then he'll create the new heaven, the new earth, the eternal home. For those of us who are born again now, there is no threat of any of that happening to us. There is no threat of being deceived. There is no threat of being deluded by Satan in the future. If we are born again in this age, when we get to heaven, we will be changed so that even our sinful desires, our sin nature will be removed. We will never have to struggle with that. There will be people born in that future heaven on earth. They will be the ones that will have to make the decision. But for us, a place of purity. 
For us, a place of righteousness. For us, a place where there is no temptation to ever lose your temper again. You won't have any road rage. You won't have any anger of somebody gossiping against you. You won't have any of those issues. You will be sharing God's full righteousness to the complete potential that God has desired. One more thing about heaven. There's restrictions. There's restrictions to this heaven. No man, he says in verse 6, can come unto the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father again but by me. He's making it very, very clear. You see, we have it set up that in our country and other countries, you get in via a passport. You have to have it you know, updated, upgraded, and so you can get in and use it. It allows you in. Well, God has a passport. The book is called the book of life. Your name needs to be in it, and if it's not in it, this is where you end up, in the lake of fire, which he, which he describes as whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into this lake of fire. Your name must be in the book of life. How do you get your name in there? You need to ask Christ to be your Savior. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Ron reminded me about an illustration I use frequently in all the weddings that I do. Go back into history and remember how Jews did their wedding in the Jewish society of the ancient Near East. When they started the wedding plans, there could be that time where a relationship is growing. It was not, weddings were not done all the time that the parents made the arrangements. In fact, by New Testament era, the, fair, the Jewish writing said that it was wrong for a father to force his daughter to marry someone that she did not love or did not want to deal with. And so there was concern in the Jewish society, though parents could do some of the arrangement, that, that there was concern that they would be compatible. So there's a start of a relationship. After the relationship is gone, for a period of time and there's a consensus between the couple that they want to get together. Then there's the betrothal process. This is when the best man would come and he would approach the parents, whoever that best man is, and say, so-and-so is interested in marrying your daughter. Here's what he's willing to pay for the bridal price, what he wants, etc., etc. And the parents, the family, the brothers, whoever is left in line of, of say, they would say yes or no. If there was a, I take you, Yes, I will take him. If there was a response by the bride, yes, I am willing to be engaged to him. I'm willing to marry him. She was engaged. She was betrothed to him. In Jewish society, betrothal was as stringent and as compelling as being married. To break it, you even had to have a bill of divorce. It was binding when they said, yes, I take you. Then what would happen is there is usually a year up to almost a year or a little bit more, that they would do the, what was called, after the payment was made, they would have what is called the period of preparation. During that period of time, the lady would get her stuff together. If she needed to learn more about cooking, crash course, here we go. If she needed to get her dowry taken care of, this is the time to do it. The guy typically would go and build a house. In those days, it could be built in addition to the parents' house. It could be built on the parents' land or some ancestral land. But he is preparing a place for his bride. When the preparation is done, then all of a sudden wedding day approached. Usually on Tuesday in Jewish society of that day. The reason they would choose Tuesday is because it is the only day of creation week where he said twice, it is good. It is good. And so they thought Tuesdays were the most lucky days. So Tuesday was usually the wedding day. They would come and the, the groom would arrive and come to the bride's house 
and she, the groom, would be prepared. By the way, grooms dress like kings for their wedding. So they were decked out even more than the bride in Bible days. And so he would collect his bride who was to have been prepared and they would start the, the parade through the streets pulling tin cans or whatever. They're going through the streets. They're headed back to his father's house. They get back to the father's house and there the wedding actually took place. That is the final I say I do. Basically was, it was done at the betrothal. Basically the parents say we do. We bless you. Clergy were not involved. It wasn't at a synagogue. It was done at the parents' house. And then they would have what they call the marriage announcement, the prayer, and the marriage feast. The feast could last a day, three days, several weeks, but the celebration would take place. The bride and groom were given blessings. They were married. All of that is a picture of what Christ has done. Christ sent his best man to make a proposal, to tell them and make an offer to the Jews, first of all. That best man who made the offer to the Jews was John the Baptist. God has also, in the, since then, given you an offer. He has sent a best man to propose to you a relationship where he could become your savior, where he could take care of your sin and give you eternal life. You have to say, at some moment in your human history, I will, I do. You become betrothed to Christ. It is as binding as a marriage. Then Jesus, in this period of time now, for the Jewish nation, has left. Today we are in that period where he is preparing a place. A place for the Jews. A place who would get born again for us. We are waiting for that time where he will come on the wedding day, unexpectedly, unannounced, and take us back to the Father's house. The rapture. Which could happen at any moment that Jesus could come and collect his bride, snatch them away, take them to heaven, that's you who are born again, take to heaven, and there in the Father's house, we have the marriage feast. We have the marriage celebration. But it won't happen to you unless you say, I do to Jesus Christ. Have you ever responded to him by saying, I take you, Jesus, to be my Savior? Has that ever happened in your life? I'm not asking, do you believe in Jesus? I'm asking, have you ever asked Jesus to be your Savior, to take away all your sins, take away all the penalty of your sins, to give you righteousness that is needed to get into heaven? You see, you can't get to heaven by yourself. You have to be tied to Jesus Christ. In some way, shape, form, you need to believe on him and you need to come to him. I take you, Jesus. And you are pronounced then one with Jesus so that when he goes back to heaven after the rapture, he takes you because he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by Jesus. You need Jesus Christ. You don't need baptism or church. You don't need good looks or money. You need Jesus. He is your only hope. He is your only way to get into heaven. Have you taken him to be your savior? This is the day if you haven't.